0: Hi, you're listening to The Conversation, where recruiting leaders come to get cutting edge strategic insight that builds competitive advantage through interviews with thought leaders and innovative practitioners operating in our industry. Every year, 250,000 service members leave the armed forces to look for new employment and purpose in the civilian world of work. If you're looking to hire more service members as part of your DI strategy, Listen to this episode. Jack Bojer's got a great story, and I'm excited to share it with you here. Welcome to the show, guys. So today on the show we have Jack Bojer, a military veteran and entrepreneur dedicated to building a more equitable, sustainable, and connected world for all. Really excited to have you here on the show, Jack. Welcome on. Thanks, Amay. Excited to be here. Yeah, so uh, Jack, right now you work at Shift. Um, Can you tell us a bit about what that is and um, you know what you do there? Absolutely. So SHIFT
1: is a talent marketplace which connects transitioning service members with ambitious companies who are looking to hire them. And so what we do is we work very closely with our industry partners to get an understanding of the roles and experiences that they're looking for. And then we reach into our talent network, uh, which extends to over 250,000 people who the military every year. And we're adding more every day. And we create partnership opportunities that match our service members with the right opportunities in the private sector. So it's really been a rewarding and meaningful way for me as I go through my own transition to give back and help others find the opportunities that they're
0: looking for. Yeah. And um, your background is actually really aligned to the mission at Shift. And um, you've just got a really fascinating background. I was looking through your LinkedIn profile. And I think before we get into the details around military hiring, and the challenges you're seeing veterans face uh, when entering the job market, I'd love to take some more time to talk about your background with you.
1: Absolutely happy to chat through my checkered past, and hopefully, hopefully, something there resonates with the audience.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, where where'd you grow up? Let's go. Let's take it all the way back to to growing up.
1: Absolutely. So, originally born and raised in Sandy Springs, Georgia, which is a suburb just north of Atlanta, and that was where I think my interest in the military. First kind of came from, I was surrounded by Civil War history, actually grew up above the Chattahoochee River where the Union Army crossed on the way to burn Atlanta, and so grew up with Confederate rifle pits in the backyard behind my house. So I think military history was always something that was all around me and something that was top of mind as I thought about what I wanted to do for college, but it really wasn't until right after graduation that my first kind of brush with military service as a tangible possibility really came about.
0: Nice. And then uh, where'd you go to school and uh, what'd you study? So I went to Dartmouth College for undergrad.
1: I was a history major there, modified it through a program we have where you can create sort of a minor of sorts that I called new security studies. So I was thinking about what are the different aspects that impact our conception of security beyond the traditional notion of state security and so looking at environmental history, uh, environmental science, uh, policy, geography, to think about how with the changing world through climate, through refugee outflows, what are some more holistic ways of thinking about security? And so that was partly where my interest in climate change and sustainability work came in. How do you mitigate the impacts of climate change, especially on marginalized populations? Um, and so that was kind of climate change and sustainability was always a twin, and still is a really strong
0: interest of mine, as I think about what I want to do in the world. Nice. Um, so, so you graduate, you have this interesting, uh, really unusual degree that I've actually never uh, never met anyone who's had. And uh, when you've always grown up around military history, but when does that um, really like burning desire to join the military kick in?
1: So it came about. For me, when I went on a birthright trip to Israel after my high school graduation, right before going to college, my dad didn't serve what my grandfather did during World War II. He was a naval officer. And it was always something that we talked about in my family as an option, but just not something that, while it was something I kind of totally considered, didn't feel real, didn't feel tangible. I knew very mm-hmm. few people, I think I really have lived the civilian-military divide in the United States because growing up, I lived very much on one side of it where it was very limited exposure to the military as a career path. It's just even an, an option. And then when I went to Israel, I met all these young people from all walks of life, all different political backgrounds who had a different kind of perspective of like a more mature and informed perspective, maybe because they had some skin in the game and national security. Um, but that really was the experience for me that made military service feel like something I could actually do. And so considered for a brief period of time, actually joining the Israeli military making Aliyah, went to Jordan afterwards and was volunteering in a refugee camp with Iraqi and Palestinian refugees. And really it was the experience with the Iraqis who had, you know, all their stories were almost identical in that they had been forced to flee Iraq during the invasion, were there in the refugee camp, and I was working with them on a U.S. State Department grant that was doing anti-radicalization training, so giving mm. providing a vocational training to folks so they had a way to make a living instead of just sitting around in these camps, which is obviously a great way to be radicalized by folks who are, you know, it's, it's a diff- really difficult situation for folks. Um, yeah. And I think, as someone who's been through, you know, gone through my own transition, uh, when you're when you're seeking, when you're searching for work and meaning, that's a very vulnerable point for sure. Um, and so it was really that experience working with these Iraqis who were kind of the human, human face, human cost of American foreign policy is where I, I guess to it's it seems maybe egotistical, but I felt like maybe I could make some small difference or. Wanted to make an impact and try to help folks like that. And so I remember literally Googling from my friends, Sofa and Amon Jordan, how do you join the U.S. military? <laughs> and I uh, found this program called Platoon Leaders Class that was unique to the Marine Corps in that it enabled you to go with no commitment afterwards to basically test drive during a college summer. So freshman mm-hmm. summer, go for six weeks to Quantico, Virginia, and I had planned on going back home and being a lifeguard. And so it seemed like why not apply for this program as well? See what comes right. of it. Uh, ended up getting accepted. And, you know, sort of from there, summer, summer 2010 was where my Marine Corps journey
0: began. Nice. And was that, was there a moment during that platoon uh, leader? What uh, was that rifle platoon leaders? course? Well,
1: platoon leaders class is what platoon, it's
0: called. Platoon leaders class. Was there a single moment that, that, Stood out to you, where you, where it clicked for you, or you're like this is this is what I want to do, or was it more of across the entire experience? You stepped back and looked at it, and you're like, this is this is the right fit for me right now.
1: Well, it officer candidate school is pretty intense. It's the mm-hmm. equivalent of rough equivalent of boot camp that people have seen in movies like Full Metal Jacket, and it's not it's not fun per se. Maybe it's type two fun. Some people would say the kind of money like, you never want to have again. For me, I, I I was looking for a challenge. I wanted to do something different. I knew I wanted to serve in some way. And I think I really appreciated or came to appreciate certainly the challenges associated with it, being pushed really hard. I do remember this one moment pretty early on a Saturday morning running through one of the obstacle courses we had there and just feeling, feeling really... Alive and connected to something greater than myself. And that was really what kept me sticking around to come back for the following summer, which was 2012. So I came back, it was split into two summers for me PLC juniors and PLC seniors. So two six week sessions. Mm-hmm. And after completion of that session, my junior summer, I was offered a commission, which I ultimately decided to take and then commissioned right the day before graduation in
0: 2013. Nice. So now you're a uh, an officer in the Marine Corps. Um, and then are you in the infantry? Because I see you became a rifle platoon commander at some point.
1: So the way that the Marine Corps does their officer assignments is, is a little bit unique, like many things in the service. And for us, it's not until you go to the basic school that you are assigned your MOS, what your job is going to be, your military occupational specialty. And so for me, Mm -hmm. I had the good fortune or just the reality of commissioning at a time when the sequester was in full effect. So these were the Obama era mandatory budget cuts that were capping, at least as related to me, the number of officers that could be on active duty at a given time. Mm -hmm. So I ended up having a gap year of sorts of about being about 10 months between commissioning in June 2013 and then going on active duty in April 2014. And so in the interim there I had I was in what's called the IRR, the Individual Ready Reserve, and then started actually training and ultimately competing for a job in April 2014. So to answer your question, I was just a unassigned ground contract and then we have, so we have ground contracts, air contracts, which are folks you know they're going to be pilots, and then mm-hmm. law contracts who are Marine Corps lawyers. And so I didn't find out what I was going to be assigned, which is actually ground intelligence, uh, which is where you're cross-trained as an infantry officer, but primarily you're working in an intelligence function. So supporting uh, typically ground combat units. So the way that we've been employed the last couple of years, you can fill a variety of different roles. But it, it wasn't for maybe
0: four or five months into that experience that I got that assignment. Okay. So about four or five months into that, you've, you've gotten your assignment, you're in intelligence. Uh, let's fast forward to when you are now a rifle platoon commander and you're working with these uh, multinational teams that have more than 70 people on them. and You're um, you know working across different cultures and languages with, with French armed forces and Australian army and, Um, All these other uh, units from different countries. What are some of the challenges that you faced around working with this multinational group and, and these large teams?
1: So those opportunities came about on my first deployment to Australia, which was definitely a highlight of my Marine Corps experience. And I got the opportunity to be a rifle platoon commander, which was pretty unusual for someone with my intelligence background, mm-hmm. uh, just because there were happened to be an opening available at the time I was rotating to the unit. So it was a really unique opportunity for me that I'll always be really grateful for to, get to lead a, a platoon, especially a rifle platoon, which is really kind of the heart and core of what the Marine Corps does. And getting to work with the Australians, although we sometimes would joke there's a language barrier right. uh, with them. <laughs> it wasn't – obviously, that's that's pretty manageable. We did work a little bit. With the FONC, which is the French Army of New Caledonia, which was a very interesting experience, and there, I think with most things, you know, they spoke enough English to to kind of get by, and then we spoke or we figured out enough to to kind of make it happen. And there would always be you know a translator, um, and I think ultimately it just comes down to having that flexibility of both mindset and training to where we're able to come in and integrate effectively you know the the language that the australians speak from a tactical and military perspective is really not too terribly different from ours and so i think just trying to come in with as much humility as possible get a sense of how others like to operate which is really the whole central theme of our deployment was building interoperability and connection with our allies um so that was just a huge takeaway. Take I think just being able to operate in you know, call cross-cultural competencies, integrating effectively, building these cross-functional teams, and then executing on the objective, I think is definitely a clear transferable skill that's a little bit more, I think like a lot of 21st century skills, Mm. Often soft and kind of challenging to quantify, but that's a real strength that I think military military veterans do bring to the table is being able
0: to work across differences with in, in a variety of contexts. Mm-hmm. Super critical as um, the world continues to become more interconnected by business and technology. Um, so next, what stood out is now you're an intelligence officer and you have these 15 intelligence analysts and you're doing executive briefings for teams of like a thousand people and working cross-functionally with, you know, force recon Navy seals and air force bombing unit. And there's even a bit of uh, technology uh, innovation happening as well around the drone program. Um, I imagine you can't speak much on what, what you did there. Um, but what really stood out to me there is that, um, a lot of times people are wondering like why, what can a veteran bring to the table? But if you look at your experience, there is so much parallel between the um, type of work that you're doing with these different um, divisions and um, the type of cross-functional projects and things like that that happen in the business environment.
1: Absolutely. And that's a big part of the work that we do at Shift is helping people translate their resumes. And it took me a really long time. I'm still learning how to translate my experience in terms that makes sense for the private sector. So I appreciate that it makes sense to you. Uh, I, I guess it's it's worked in some capacities, but that's a huge, I guess a huge challenge that all veterans, that anyone who's making a career change or a cultural change has to learn is how do you communicate effectively? How do you how do you seek to be understood first um, and or rather understand and, and then be understood? Because I think if you're not able, there, there's certainly languages that each military branch has and within that different subcultures, like the Marine Corps infantry, you know, has its own language, just like any group, right? Any, mm-hmm. And I think veterans are very well poised to be re-skilled, up-skilled, to rapidly adapt because that's just what we do. You know, we change jobs on average every roughly two-ish years, two to three years. You might have a primary functional specialty, but you'll grow laterally and be challenged to develop new skills over the course of your career. As I think mine illustrates, you know, I had, I was trained for a period and then I did a number, you know, probably had 10 different jobs that I had over the course of two and a half years that I was actually in the operating forces with real, uh, responsibilities. And that's probably on the middle to low end. You know, I know people who had, because they have, what's called collateral bills, these kind of side responsibilities. You'll mm-hmm. have all kinds of additional work that you'll have in addition to your primary job. And so I think, especially for, more senior enlisted and officers, that ability to work and coordinate cross-functionally is really the core competency that military folks bring.
0: Yeah, it's, it's so interesting that you mentioned the 10 different jobs in two years and that that's on the low end because um, I was at uh, HR Tech in, in Vegas as a conference. And, uh, I saw Josh Burson speak as one of the um, really well-known industry analysts in the HR space. And he was talking about um, how technology disruption and workforce disruption is changing the type of career path that um, highly skilled talent uh, will follow. So whereas in the past you had that standard corporate ladder path with two options, skill or management, and staying in a single functional area for the entirety of your career, um, he says now and in the future, um, the talent that companies are going to need is the kind that moves diagonally in lots of different directions all over the organization and is able to adapt really quickly and get that big picture view so as as tech destruction continues to happen people with military backgrounds that have done that successfully um, are are really going to be in demand I think
1: yeah I, I certainly feel the same way and that's that's a big part of our thesis is just having this really adaptable talent that has a real skill for learning you know sort of the the meta skill like of learning how to learn mm-hmm. and That is absolutely at the core of what we, how we think about the future of work and how we think about talent, and just creating more opportunities for more people is is kind of what it comes down to. Because there are, there's 200,000 people in the military every year. I was stunned to learn that the volume is that high, and there's so much talent, so much desire to make a positive impact, to work at a mission-driven company, and companies are hungry to hire vets they just often don't know how and so that's really the challenge that we're trying to unlock through this marketplace is aligning the supply with the demand
0: nice so let's fast forward a bit now you've you've left the military um and um you know you've written this awesome article on new york times and um where where are you at now did you have a job lined up for after you left the military before you left or was there a period of a couple of months where you're searching for work what, what was the struggle there the story
1: so i would definitely recommend that folks whenever possible not do exactly what i did which was because of my deployment timelines and uh just some kind of personal scheduling challenges or realities i ended up coming back from my second deployment i only had about three weeks to leave active duty which is relatively uncommon um and so the only thing that I had really lined up was to go through this veterans entrepreneurship program at Stanford over the summer. So I left, left the military in May 2018, or that was when I started my uh, kind of terminal leave, as we call it, and then uh, officially ended my service in June, and then spent June July down at Stanford, which was kind of a mini MBA program. Highly recommend the Stanford Ignite program for any transitioning veterans, along with Tuck Next Step. It's just a really wonderful way to. Get your feet wet, explore whether or not an MBA might be right for you, and just get a really good cross functional understanding of the business environment in a place that is pretty unmatched. Stanford GSB is awesome. The, the faculty down there is really incredible. Um, and just highly, highly recommend that experience. And then I came, I moved to San Francisco full time, started searching around Labor Day of 2018. And I went through another program I'd love to plug is the Commit Foundation which is a really wonderful group that started up by veterans of the military and intelligence community that seeks to, in their words, create serendipity through transition coaches. I had a phenomenal transition weekend that I spent with them kind of thinking through my goals and values and I think thinking really deeply about value preferences, about where you want to go, what you want to do functionally, what, what are you, to use kind of a Silicon Valley term that I think is a good way to think about this, is what are you solving for? What are the variables that are most important to you? And for the first time in most people's lives who are leaving the military, you have the opportunity to really design your own life or create and shape the reality you want to experience every day. And that's a huge opportunity and huge responsibility, particularly if you're thinking about it from kind of a family perspective or beyond yourself. And so... I think just encouraging veterans to think as long and hard as they can in advance uh, would be helpful. I I feel really fortunate in that it took me, you know, after a couple months of searching and kind of getting closer, I was really lucky to land at a venture studio called Atomic where I spent a couple months working on some different real estate and affordable housing ideas, learned a ton. Will always be really appreciative of that opportunity. I ended up leaving last spring to, pursue some stuff on my own. I'd always had an interest in clean energy. I was doing a fellowship program with the Clean Energy Leadership Institute, doing some technical and leadership development training with them. And then really it was over the summer when I got a little bit more clarity around wanting to go a bit deeper on a function. And so for me, that came down to thinking about kind of the broader world of sales, business development, partnerships and had connected with Mike and the team at shift previously during my transition, the time it didn't really work out for me to do a fellowship program of my own, but applied and joined the team here uh, early last fall. And so it's been a, a great ride being part of this, uh, this mission
0: as we, as we move forward. So what are, what are a few reasons why hiring a veteran is, is a smart decision for, really any business, even if they don't have that specific functional experience that you're looking for?
1: Well, what we tend to see in a talking point that we use a lot is just that hiring veteran tends to uplevel your culture. And by that, we mean you're getting a team player who understands intuitively how to work cross-functionally, how to work in challenging, ambiguous environments. And according to that same survey Mm -hmm. that the Society for Human Resource Management did, found that Veterans tend to be better educated than the average person, the average job seeker. They tend to stay at jobs longer. They tend to stay Typical job seekers, job holders these days are about 24 months, and we're seeing veterans do close to two and a half years.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And we think that's just because veterans do have that sense of, call it loyalty to an employer, especially when they first are getting out. They're really looking for a place to kind of cut their teeth. And if you can create a positive job environment where differences are celebrated, where unique perspectives really truly are valued, and where the veteran skill translation can really come into effect, you know, there's really no shortage, there's no ceiling at all for how folks can get. We'll see often that military folks tend to get promoted very rapidly as well. Um, and just come in, be a sponge, and absorb what they do very, very quickly. We've seen that happen with a number of our fellows at at different partner companies with coming in and just really making a big impact right away. And so that's where we really are focused on aligning as early as possible on the needs of a company, find out what they're hiring for, um, and kind of avoiding the, the typical model that you'll see, which is, I think the kind of common approach in veteran hiring is generally how do you build a better skills or MLS translator, trying to match skills to job and sort of a candidate to company approach. And for Mm -hmm. us, we look at working individually with each of our partners to create very specific bespoke talent strategies for identifying the right profiles to get into right roles and being very specific about the function and geography there. And then taking that demand to the supply side Um, as we kind of create and unlock these different opportunities for vets. So for us, it's been really looking at what we think of as go to market roles. So sales, customer success, operations and project or program management are four big buckets that we find a ton of transferability. And so that's really been kind of the sweet spot and also opening up new pathways with Lambda School through a partnership program called Shift Pathways that's going Mm -hmm. to be creating uh, Mm -hmm. software developers who are coming out of the veteran pipeline. So it'll be a really unique and new talent pool that we're working on and really excited about. And also rolling out direct hires for veterans. So this will just provide our partners with a lot more flexibility as they're looking to scale. So we're making placements in the dozens or as we look to open up bigger and bigger partnerships uh, that will really create a little bit more flexibility as far as the outreach and the population
0: that we're able to connect people with. Um, what, is, um, what is something that you see a lot of companies get wrong with their approach to hiring veterans, or what, what's broken about hiring veterans right now?
1: I think what we sometimes will see is a focus on relatively low-skill jobs. Um, or sometimes seasonal work. And while that's certainly, you know, I really do believe in dignity of work. I think that any opportunity is, it's great that folks are looking to create as many opportunities as possible for folks. At the same time, we really do look for meaningful, well-paying work that's going to be commensurate with experience. And so really a lot of what we do is just evangelism and advocacy around, explaining what veterans can do and how they do have these very well-rounded skill sets that often translate well into on-ramps to leadership positions. You know, most, I think something that I didn't appreciate and will be interesting to see how this shakes out my own career, but piece of advice that I didn't really wrap my head around until being in the job force for, uh, you know, I guess almost coming up on year and a half, two years now, is that to reach the same level of seniority that I held in the military, You know, which when I was a platoon commander was generally leading teams of 30 to 40 that at times went up to 70 to 75. If you're leading an organization of that size in the private yeah. sector, you are probably the founder. The earliest that would happen is you're the founder, CEO of – a growing startup, that would be a pretty good sized company. Or you've stuck around and you're in a corporate position or larger company and you're leading a pretty big division. And so that's something that typically happens literally decades later. And so to shift from being on, you know, that the management side, supervisory side, leadership side to individual contributor roles. I think that's a big kind of mental change that is just—it's just a reality. It's something that I don't even think it's necessarily humble pie. It's just remembering that there is this transitions, this retraining, reskilling, um, and also something that hopefully you're bringing to an organization is that leadership mentality, kind of ownership mentality, even though you're working in a role that maybe doesn't directly demand that.
0: Yes, there, there's a lot of changes in mindset that are starting to happen um, around both on the hiring side and as well as um, on the candidate side for veterans. Um, so how, how long has Shift been around and who are, who are some of the companies you guys are working with now?
1: Absolutely. So we've been around for about three years and some of our current partners that we can talk about are Okta, Affirm, Major League Baseball, and you know, a lot of the a lot of the existing partnerships have been really with these high growth tech companies. And that's where we see a lot of success where there's that ambition and interest to bring in veterans to fill in some leadership gaps to shore up that opportunity. And yeah, it's been a really, really interesting ride to kind of think about how do you solve this problem? What does the future of work look like, especially for this really unique corner of the workforce and then for me being involved in diversity and inclusion work has been really meaningful so just learning more about this pocket which is really leading the way i think on thought leadership for the workplace and then really as work gets more and more important you know society as well how do you build a more diverse and inclusive culture more
0: broadly so um like zooming out from like five ten years from now um what do you, what, what's kind of your vision for one, like an ideal picture for, um, you know, there's 200,000 veterans, I think you said, that leave the military every year. 250, yeah. 250,000. What's the ideal kind of scenario for them to transition out and find work they love?
1: If I was the director of the transition assistance program, I was the head of the VA. I, I think that developing and... So this would be something that we'd love to be involved with at Shift and seeing more innovative forward thinking work on the military side from transition assistance, which I think we really are seeing. Frankly, I think that this Skillbridge program itself exemplifies the way that the DOD and the transition assistance program at the Pentagon are really thinking about this issue is how do you get more people, more jobs? that really are mapping and aligning to their interests and their skills. I think that's going to be an an ongoing process for sure. I think ideally from Schist's perspective, we're working with the leading companies that do have the scale, the ambition, the vision to build really meaningful and productive veteran pipelines for not just diversity and inclusion reasons, but really from a business perspective. And so, that's where we often find the best partners or folks who have either veterans in leadership positions who are just by being themselves really strong advocates or folks who otherwise really get it. And oftentimes it's been someone who's worked with a veteran, was really taken by their story, by their experience. And I think for me, the real adage is the way that I think about this challenge is that talent's universal and opportunity is not and so just going out and creating more opportunities for people to plug in is really what I think that's really why shift exists and so in five to ten years would love to see this scaling up to you know tens and tens and tens of thousands of people coming through our programs getting trained up and really just open the aperture on what's possible for them in their
0: lives. So if uh, now if I'm a veteran, and I'm listening to this podcast. Um, where can I go to uh, to connect and learn more about Shift and what I can do for me?
1: Yeah, so please log on to shift.org, sign up in our talent portfolio. I think a big piece of that is the mentorship platform that we're building out and being able to connect with people who are in similar positions. Um, you know, it's like a little bit more targeted LinkedIn in that sense. I think absolutely maximizing LinkedIn. They offer one-year premium access for transition service members. Got to do that. Um, And then as you go through our program and on your own, I think spending the time and thinking really critically about where do you want to be? What kind of skills do you want to develop? Do you, you know, you say you want to work at a startup. Do you really understand what that means? Maybe talking to some veterans who work at startups beyond and just really getting beyond I think these buzzy words that can appear sexy or interesting online and talking to real human beings who are doing those jobs and saying, oh, that is what it might mean to be an account executive. That's what it might mean to be an operations manager at a company of this size, of this profile. And just really learning how to tell your story, thinking about your personal brand, and then just... Going for and taking the leap and recognizing that, I think I appreciated the analogy you had talking about these diagonal moves. I think I think Cheryl Sandberg who used the analogy of a jungle gym instead of a ladder. Yeah, and I think that's very apt in the 21st century, and that's very different from a military career where there is such a clearly defined hierarchy and structure, and you know, generally speaking, that if you stayed in for 20 years. You know, it happened, I think for most of us, we have that mapped out for you, what that looks like. And so recognizing that you are about to step off the very thoughtfully designed personnel management system that as much as we malign and get frustrated with the way of things work in the military, you know, it is a system that for the most part, you know, works pretty well. And you're stepping away from that, I think just really taking responsibility for yourself. And then I'd really encourage you, obviously, to take advantage of programs like Shift that are working to solve that problem and work on some of those inefficiencies in the market right now.
0: And if I am running a diversity and inclusion initiative at a large company and I want to bring on more veterans, or I am a recruiting team manager or director of recruiting, and I want to make sure my team is going after uh, veteran candidates the right way, Um, what are are some things I can do to learn more about that and how can I get involved with Shift?
1: Well, certainly reach out to us at shift.org slash employers. Um, You can drop me and the team an email at jack.bodre at shift.org. I would be happy to point in the right direction. I think the biggest thing is thinking about where are the areas in your business where... These, these life experiences and soft skills can really come in and make a difference. And whether that's in go-to-market roles, whether that's in a different role, our team of talent strategists really exists to help you think through and understand that and how do you integrate this talent. And that's a big piece of my job as well from a partnership's perspective is identifying the gaps, helping folks understand where this unique talent pool can come in and play an immediate value add and then working through the implementation and customer success, because for us, we this is a relationship-based business, and the partnerships we're building we intend to last for years and years and decades. And particularly because of this evergreen talent pool, uh, if if we can get this right, and as we focus on really fine-tuning the the talent pool and the talent flows, I think there's just an incredible amount of opportunity here to find with the right companies who are looking to hire and fill these slots, just making, making a lot of magic happen for folks as they leave the military. So it's a really exciting time in the I think in the history of shift as a company. And then just in the DNI and veteran hiring landscape in general, it, it just a, a massive, massive opportunity here. So excited to be a part of it and
0: just kind of sitting here at the ne- at the nexus of it all. Nice. Well, that that's a great spot to end the episode, I think. And uh, thank you so much for being on the show, Jack. And, uh, Yeah, looking forward to seeing what what you guys are able to accomplish at Shift, and I'll be closely following along.
1: Yeah, well, thanks so much. We appreciate the time.
0: More than 90% of companies believe they have skills gaps. More than 60% of all jobs are radically changing in front of our eyes. And 70% of your employees are anxious about their skills and want real-time development but aren't getting it. Josh Burson's research showed that the number one reason an employee leaves a company is because of a lack of growth or learning. His research also discovered that across the board, companies of all sizes and industries have a workforce that's behind in certain skills. Now service members are challenged constantly to move laterally, gain new skills, and many have had upwards of 10 different jobs in two years. This is because many have collateral billets, which as we learned earlier, are side responsibilities they are given in addition to their primary jobs. Their ability to be upskilled, reskilled, and work cross-functionally is exactly what many organizations need more of. The 250,000 service members looking for new careers have exactly that. I'd like to challenge you today to find new ways to upskill, train, and hire more of our service members. I'll see you next time on the conversation and thanks for listening.